you have a Bible with you, please open it to the book of Matthew. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find a Bible in the pocket of the pew in front of you, and you can find the book of Matthew on page 757 of that Bible. We will be beginning by reading the first 17 verses of Matthew here in just a moment. We are starting a new sermon series through Matthew. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful time to be able to do that. I've been looking forward to not just preaching through Exodus, which I've now done, but then preaching through Matthew. Um, I'm, I'm excited for this opportunity, and I hope that it is beneficial to you as well. If you've never undertaken the task, though, knowing how to start a biography probably seems like a very easy thing. You start with the birth of the person that you're, you're writing about. But given that so many people have undertaken that task, it's interesting that very few actually start with just that one event. Because to tell the story of someone's life is to tell the story of, of the things that have impacted them, the, the way in which the things around them have changed them and moved them and the things that they themselves had to respond to. There's a cultural context, a political context, a familial context, and even an educational context that, that kind of defines their life. And many of these things predate the birth of the person. And so it's hard to know exactly where to start. It's hard to know if you're going to talk about Abraham Lincoln, if starting at his birth is the appropriate place, or talking about how presidents have worked up to that point. After all, his life is meaningful to us because he was president. Even outside of that, talking about slavery would be a good idea. So people undertake to start these things at different places. And, and certainly our biographies that we have, if you want to call them that, of Jesus are no different. Each one of the four starts in a completely different and almost unrelated spot. If you, if you open to Mark and you started reading through Mark, you'd find that Mark pays very small attention to the things that precede Jesus. He talks about the gospel of, well, he talks about Isaiah and the coming of John the Baptist. He talks briefly about the ministry of John the Baptist, and then almost immediately we are following the ministry of Jesus. Luke begins at a different point. Luke begins not even by talking about Jesus, but by talking about his own work. He talks about how he carefully observed these things and, and compiled them. This is a, a history. If, if Mark wants to tell you this is what Jesus did, Luke wants to tell you this is what Jesus did, and you can trust me, it's true. John, always the individual, doesn't want to do any of that. He says, to understand who Jesus is, you can't just go back to his birth. You've got to go back to before creation, because he was before anything else ever could have been. He is indeed one with God. For John, to understand Jesus is not just to understand that what he has done in this world, or to understand that it is indeed true, but it is to understand who he is as the very Son of God. Matthew begins his gospel differently than all the rest. Luke does have a genealogy, and we'll be talking about that. But Matthew starts directly by launching us into this genealogy. In essence, Matthew seems to be saying that in order, in order to understand Jesus, you've, you've got to see his, his roots. You've got to know where he has come from. You've got to know the context in which he has grown up in. That context is not just the first century of the ancient Near East. That context goes all the way back to the very promises made to Abraham. To be truth, truthful when we read something like this, we probably have many questions about the text before us. 
if, if this is supposed to be the greatest story ever told, then maybe, Matthew, you could have picked a little bit better of an introduction to it. Like, this is, it's kind of flat, right? We don't find much, much joy in genealogies. We're reading through a listing of names, and, and not a lot of it pops out to us. Why start with this? What could, what could this genealogy possibly have for us? I think that Matthew's genealogy and even the first verse of Matthew's book has a lot for us. It not only introduces the entirety of the book, as we will see, but it introduces the birth narrative and it introduces exactly what he is trying to do here. There is a lot to learn from this. While we would ask questions of the text, I think the text will just as easily ask questions of us. So let us turn to the text. I'll read those first 17 verses and ask ourselves three questions as we go forward this morning. Read with me, beginning in the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Ezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eloid, and Eloid the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of our God. First question I think that we should have posed to us this morning is, do we or do you find potential in Jesus? Do you find potential in Jesus? Our book starts somewhat innocuously, innocuously, I can't, whatever. It starts simply enough, simply enough. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, which seems like a very able and capable introduction because Matthew is going to run directly into a genealogy. There are five simple English words that begin this, two Greek words. 
It is odd, though, that those two Greek words are translated the way that they are continuously in almost every English Bible, because almost every scholar that you look at notes that these are not actually the right words to be translated. Not that the Greek words are different, but that our English is just not very good. Turns out that not just modern scholars, but ancient scholars all noted that this particular phrase has quite the meaning behind it. It comes up in two places in the Greek Old Testament, both from the book of Genesis, which is not a coincidence because one of the words that's used here is indeed the word Genesis. And it comes from chapter 5, verse 1 of Genesis, or chapter 2, verse 4. Chapter 5, verse 1 says this in the English. This is the book of the generations of Adam. The Greek can probably accurately be translated. This is the book of the Genesis of man. It is the beginning of man. It is recalling the very creation of man. It is telling us how man came to be. And Genesis chapter 5 is famous for a listing not only of a genealogy, but a genealogy that ends, unlike almost all genealogies do, by remarking on how each and every one of those men died. It's a genealogy of judgment. It ends by giving us Noah, who himself stands for a very particular judgment of God. Genesis 2.4 does much the same. ESV translates the beginning of 2.4 as, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. The Holman translation does something along the same lines. These are the records of the heavens and the earth, but just as easily could be translated, this is the book of the genesis of the heavens and the earth, which makes sense because chapter 1 of the book of Genesis gives us a particular story about creation, but just as Jesus has multiple stories written about him and multiple ways of looking at his life and his ministry, so Scripture thinks that the creation of all things needs at least two stories. And so we've got two different versions, not wrong versions, not competing versions, but two different ways of looking at how God has created the world. And so chapter 2, verse 4 of Genesis is talking about how the heavens and the earth were made. Chapter 5 seems to be a judgment. Matthew seems to stand in, in line with that in places, but really rather against it, as, as though it's, it's sort of saying, I'm like chapter 5, verse 1, but I'm not like that. It seems to stand in line with chapter 2. In other words, as much as those things were talking about how everything was beginning, Matthew says, everything is beginning anew. And this isn't something that catches us off guard. If, if you've been here for a while, we just got done with the book of Exodus, and we talked about how the tabernacle and the building of the tabernacle was so central there. And one of the things that the building of the tabernacle was meant to convey was that God was bringing all things to a newness here. Whether that means that God is going to scrap all of the old and start again with a fresh heavens and a fresh earth, or he is going to just redo the creation that's here so well that it will be new again, that is precisely what seems to be promised in the tabernacle. What Matthew seems to be saying is what is promised there is actually found here in Jesus. Just as Isaiah prophesied that there will be new heavens and new earth in Isaiah 66, Jesus brings something of that new. There is a new beginning, a new way of being, a new way of walking forward in life. But we need to stress that it is just a, a possibility. Again, these words are meant to introduce us to the entirety of the gospel of Matthew. 
This is not the new creation of the heavens and earth when God will roll up the heavens like a scroll and God will redo all things and there will be judgment. This is a new creation that is held out as a possibility for men and women. After all, as you go through Matthew's gospel, there'll be plenty of people who want to reject Jesus, want to reject the newness that he brings. They will huff over his seeming naivete. They're going to blow him off as some sort of drunkard or a rube or even as a sinner. There are plenty of people within the gospel of Matthew who are going to be happy clinging on to their precious past, thinking that it is the key to the future, convinced of their own greatness and their own power and their own might. But there will be plenty more who will find this newness as a way to put their past behind them, a way to have a truly fresh start, a way to understand what it means to be born again in the words of John. These people will not be who they were. Being in and with and around Jesus Christ, they will be made new. Tax collectors will no longer simply be treasonous, but they will be apostles. Prostitutes are sold out, but now not for their bodies, but they are sold out for the kingdom of God. Uneducated fishermen are made to be those who are wise. Suffering will be healed. Storms will be stopped. Demons will be rebuked. All of this comes from the work of Jesus Christ. And again, it needs to under, we need to understand that this possibility is no different for the people of the first century who saw Jesus Christ do these miracles as it is for us. The possibility is there for us today, but it is only a possibility You must seize it. You must do what those who actually made that possibility a reality for them. Follow him. Trust in him. Listen to him. As he says, build your house on the rock of his teaching. Do everything you can to put your trust in him. Do you believe in the potential of Jesus to do these very things? Do you find potential in Jesus? Secondly, do we see the parody around Jesus? That sounds like two distinct words, and I want to make clear which word I mean. I mean P-A-R-O-D-Y, for those of you spelling at home. I think I spelled that right. I honestly don't know. I'm a horrible speller. But what I don't mean is the parody that means like balance and equalness. I mean parody like a joke. When we turn to this genealogy, we are immediately struck by oddities. It's probably the the safest word to use for them. There's just a bunch of oddities in this genealogy. If you were reading through this, you would would read it, you'd say, yeah, that that sounds right. I've heard these names before. I I remember them from the Old Testament. If I was reading through it in a year, I I heard those names in 2 Chronicles and in 1 Chronicles. I, I remember reading about them in 1 and 2 Kings. By the time you get over to Luke, though, you start to read the same kind of thing from Luke. Luke is different than Matthew in a couple of ways. Luke is reversing the order, so he starts with Jesus and he he works his way back down all the way to Adam. But immediately you're hit by something. You say, in Luke, I don't remember any of those names. Until you get from Jesus to David, those lists are almost completely different in every way, shape, and form they can be. Between David and Jesus, Matthew has 28 names. He, he talks about the fact that there's going to be, there's, you know, 
three groups of 14 here, so there's 28 names. Luke, over the same span of time, has 42 different names. And of those 42, only two match. And we don't even know that they're the same people. I'm not going to be able to reconcile that particular problem for you here today. I don't know that we actually need to. Some have speculated that, well, Luke is going to follow Mary's line of descent while Matthew follows Joseph's line of descent. And and in that way, we can kind of reconcile the two. But I'm going to tell you, that's just not the case. There's no reading of Luke that could ever lead you to think that because he honestly just tracks it right through Joseph. And no one in the ancient world would have ever tracked genealogies through a mother. I don't even know that those records would have been kept. It would have been very hard to do that. It's clear that it's through the line of the father. So how do we reconcile it? Some people say, well, Matthew is recording what we call the legal line where Luke is recording the natural line of descent. I don't know if all that's true. I do want to call attention to some of the issues that are here and try to provide a way for us to understand what Matthew is doing, though. There are other oddities that come up. Immediately, we are hit by the fact that women are mentioned. Women who don't need to be in a genealogy like this. Women who appear out of nowhere It's not every woman who's mentioned. They're not even the most prominent women who are mentioned, but they just kind of pop up. If you follow in your footnotes, you'll notice that there are what they say alternate spellings for kings' names. I'm also going to disavow you of that notion. There are no alternate spellings for these kings' names. The only reason why we think there's alternate spellings is because Matthew spells them that way. But prior to Matthew, there were none. So misspelling might be the better way to put it. There also appears to be several misgenerations. In verse 8, we read that Joram is the father of Uzziah. And that's true in a certain sort of way, the same way that Jesus is the son of Abraham, or you could say that Abraham was his father. But there are actually three generations skipped there, which does make a difference if you're going to say that there are 14 generations, right? Otherwise, it wouldn't matter. But Matthew draws attention to the fact that there are specifically 14 different generations, which brings us to the last oddity, which is, if you look at the first set, there are indeed 14. You can count them. Abraham on down to David, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. You get to David, there's 14. Second stanza, second group, there's 14. Third group, you count. And then you reach the end, and you're like, that can't be right. I'm going to count again. And you begin to count again. And you get stuck on 13 every single time. So, how do we answer this? Well, as I see it, we've got basically two choices. Matthew had some errors. He made a couple of faux pas, a couple of mistakes. But these aren't, these aren't little mistakes. These are like big old stupid mistakes. Right? So the misspelling of names is kind of bad. It's not the worst thing in the world because people weren't quite as fastidious about that then as they are now. This is why John Wycliffe spells his name like 38 different ways. Okay? So people are, and, and that was only a couple hundred years ago. This is way earlier. So you can have different spellings. It's not that big of a deal. But it does bring into question how closely Matthew is reading his Old Testament. And because Matthew relies so much on the Old Testament, 
That calls a great deal into question. Seems like he was sloppy with his ability to count, copying names, following what, what are honestly clear lines of descent in the Old Testament. I think that there's a pretty easy answer for this. Either he was sloppy, he made errors, or he meant to do all of these things. Now, the reason why I think he meant to do all of these things is we know something about Matthew. Matthew, who is recorded here, church history has always told us, is an apostle of the Lord. And interestingly enough, he recounts his own being called by Jesus in Matthew 9, chapter 9, verse 9. And we read very simply, Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So Matthew was a tax collector. Tax collectors don't have an incredibly difficult job. It's a fairly straightforward job. There are a couple of things the Romans really had to have them do. You needed to know who you were taking money from, how much money you were owed, and make sure that you got that money from them. That means that you have to have two skills and you've got to have them in spades. You've got to be able to keep very accurate records and be an incredibly detailed person and to know how to count. Now, given that the rest of the people in here can count to 14, I'm expecting that Matthew can as well. And given the rest of his gospel is one of incredible detail, very carefully put together, the thought that he then just made a whole bunch of mistakes in the opening stanzas of his gospel is sort of unfathomable to me. So I think that all of these errors, mistakes, all these, these little notes are all incredibly purposeful. So let's take it one at a time. Why mention the women? Immediately what we would do is look for some clue of why they're grouped the way that they're grouped because he didn't pick the most famous women. Now, granted, Ruth is fairly famous and Rahab is certainly famous in the New Testament. She comes up several times. But Tamar is not very famous. Why mention these? You didn't mention Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Leah. Why mention these? And no matter what you make of those other four, these women do have at least one thing very, very clearly in common, other than the fact that they're women. They're all foreign. They're not Israelites. Tamar was a Canaanite. You could call Rahab a Canaanite, but she's from Jericho, so you can call her a Jerichoite. Ruth was a Moabite. Bathsheba was a Hittite by marriage. The point of this is that all these women who are mentioned here are foreign. Now, that's important to mention because the men can't possibly be foreign because the men all descend from Abraham, as they must descend from Abraham because it's a genealogy that begins with Abraham. But the women can be foreign. And so Matthew is going out of his way not simply to mention the women here, although that is part of it. He's also mentioning foreign women. And what's more, at least two of the people who are major members of this genealogy did something very, very bad to bring about the children who are mentioned here. You'll notice Bathsheba isn't even mentioned by name so that Matthew might point out that it was an adulterous affair that Bathsheba is never blamed for, but David quite clearly is. Judah has an atrocious problem with Tamar. The point is, by mentioning these women, not simply, not simply to say that women were included in this, but foreign women were included in this, and even some of the best of these people, David included, was 
a wicked sinner. The second stanza. Second stanza begins by mentioning Solomon. If you are paying attention to Luke, you'll notice that this is exactly where Luke and Matthew begin to diverge. Matthew is tracking through the kings, so they're fairly easy to find in the Old Testament. You can go to the Old Testament, you can read through genealogies of the kings in the Old Testament, you can just read through First and Second Kings, and you can see these names pop up time and time again. There is a progression here, and it's noted by Matthew himself. You have the height of the Davidic kingdom, but by the time you get down to verse 11, everyone's being deported to Babylon because that is exactly the kind of descent that's going on. Things are going from bad to worse. As the kings became more idolatrous, more rebellious, more forgetful of the things of God, the people themselves, following their representative, moved further and further away from God until the very promises of God were called into question. The people would be moved out of the land that they were promised. The presence of God would be taken up from the temple. He promised to always be with them. God's temple was in shambles and destroyed. The kings were in disrepair. Everything seemed lost. But I think that this is highlighted by two name changes. I think Matthew changes their names, and I think he does so on purpose. I think he does so tongue-in-cheek, winking at us the whole time. Because it's not too hard for anyone who reads the Old Testament to find out that the name of Ammon was changed to Amos here, and the name of Asa was changed to Asaph. The oddity about changing those two names is that both, well, Asaph to a lesser extent, but certainly Amos, were incredibly well known. It's not like he changed them to some weird name, some throw-off name that, that had never come up. These are two incredibly important people. Asaph wrote the second most number of psalms. Next to David, he was the psalmist. He wrote all of the psalms between Psalms 73 and 83 and more to boot. Amos, of course, was the famous prophet. As you look through this descent from the height of the Davidic Empire all the way down, mentioning of these two people seems to be important because he found names that he could change, and he could change to these people who speak in almost identical terms, although in two different ways. Asaph continually talks about how God's mercy is going to be needed over the people of Israel. The people of Israel have done wrong, they've done bad, their enemies are triumphing over them. All the way from Psalm 73 to Psalm 83, this is a repeating refrain, but along with that repeating refrain is this refrain, God will have mercy. The end of Psalm 79 says this, Let the groans of the prisoners come before you. According to your great power, preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. Amos does much the same lamenting the despicable social circumstances of the people of Israel. In chapter 9, he comes out with guns blazing, saying that Israel will be destroyed, and then says these words at the very close of his book. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. And they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. 
and recalling the fall of these kings who did so poorly for their people. David, from David down to Jeconiah, as the people themselves are pulled further and further away from God, as the people themselves find themselves further and further from the promises and the goodness of God, there's hope that there will be mercy and there will be goodness, which leads us all the way back to Jesus. What do I mean by calling this a parody or a joke? I think it is something of a joke. You see, Matthew is filled with mockery and irony at times. Probably the best place that we see this sort of irony is in the introduction, not just here, but up through chapter 4 in the infancy narratives. But it's also seen, of all places, in the crucifixion. Jesus has over his head a sign that reads, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. The Romans put it there to mock the Jews and their worthless king. The Jews seize on that to mock Jesus, saying, if you're the king of the Jews, as you so claim, why don't you come down? But for those who are in the know, for those who who get the joke, for those who understand what Matthew is doing by pointing that out, we realize that their mocking comes back on themselves. Because they're mocking Jesus for not being strong enough. They're mocking Jesus for not being good enough. They're mocking Jesus for even pretending to be the king. But we know he is the king. He's the king not just of the Jews. He is the Lord even over the Romans who stand there mocking him. And it is not his strength to be able to come down but is his use of power to keep him up. So Matthew writes this, not in order to simply tell us that Jesus was mocked, but to mock those who mocked Jesus. And I think the same thing's going on here. You see, the Jews were assured that the Messiah was going to come. The Messiah was going to come and deliver them from the Romans, deliver them from their problems, deliver them from all of the oppression and all of the, the difficulties that they've had over hundreds and hundreds of years. They were assured that the Messiah would come and deliver people who looked like them, who talked like them, who walked like them, who were like them. He would come to deliver men who were righteous and holy before the Lord. Matthew mocks that. First, the number of men listed here are not holy and righteous, standing in the line of the Messiah. Because the Messiah wasn't just here to deliver the righteous, he was here to deliver the unrighteous as well. The Messiah is not just the representative, like these kings were, of the nation of Israel. But because Matthew includes these women, he is representing all people, men and women. Not just people from the line of Israel, But all nations, all tribes, all tongues, all languages will find that Jesus stands as their representative, not to fall down like these kings did, but to walk rightly before the Lord, because mercy has come. The question then becomes, are you in on the joke? Do you get it? Like the people of Israel, People in the church can fool themselves, even while they outwardly confess 
that the gospel is for everybody. Inwardly, we sometimes have this feeling that the gospel is really kind of more like for people like I am. Not holy, ugly, and gross, and unrighteous in the way we walk through the world, but, but pretty decent people who need a little bit of a help. It's here for people who walk like us and talk like us. Matthew takes the one thing that screams that Jesus is a Jew, that Jesus is a Hebrew, that Jesus is a man, that that Jesus is a king, and uses that very thing to mock the sort of tunnel vision that so many Jews and his countrymen had. To say, no, Jesus is the Savior, not just of people who are holy and righteous or think they are before the Lord, but for sinners, for women, for foreigners, for all people. So it is today. That leads us then to the third stanza. Assuming that Matthew knew of this issue, there have been many attempts to reconcile why there are only 13 names there. Some of them are very, very, very bad. Some people say we ought to be counting David again, but I don't see how that could possibly work. Uh, Some people have this very long and difficult understanding of the name of Jeconiah, which is actually therefore referring to two different people, and so he ought to be counted twice. That doesn't work because Matthew doesn't give us any hint that that's what's going on. Some people say that we ought to count Mary and Joseph separately, that also doesn't seem to be what's going on because really what we're doing is counting fathers. Some people disastrously actually think that we ought to count Jesus as one of the generations and the Christ as another one of the generations, and I don't even have time to begin to show you why that is both stupid and just full of folly. So what's going on? I think the question is simplified quite a bit by changing how we ask. Typically, we're talking about where is the, where is the generation what, what generation's gone wrong here? But what we're really asking is that third question. Do we know the parentage of Jesus? Who is the father of Jesus? And once we ask, we're very, very close to the answer. Immediately, as though he knew that's what we were asking, As though Matthew knew that the question would come up. He's expecting people to read it. They're going to get to 13 and they're going to say, who is this father of Jesus that we're missing? Immediately, he says this in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child. From... And this sounds a lot like a Jerry Springer type moment, right? So you've got Mary sitting over here, and he's like, hey, she's pregnant, but she ain't married. And it's not Joseph's. Who's the father? We're going to open the curtain, and here comes the father, and it's God. It's the Holy Spirit. That's the missing generation. Now, it doesn't make a lot of sense of how Matthew's playing around with this because he doesn't say that God... but man, that makes a lot more sense than thinking that you're supposed to count Mary and Joseph. That makes a lot more sense than thinking that Jesus and the Christ are somehow two different generations. God is the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. What Matthew is pointing out is that all of this humanity that's going on here, you cannot lose the sight of the fact that Jesus is God in flesh. The one who is going to be born of Mary, as the Holy Spirit overshadows her, creates in her this life. 
is, yes, going to be the adopted son of Joseph, the adopted son of David, and the son of Abraham. But he will also be Emmanuel, God with us. All of this salvation, all of this good news, all of this kingdom of God that is to come is the work of God. This isn't happenstance. This isn't, this isn't something that, that God just was happy worked out. This is whole, Matthew's whole reason, frankly, for, for even mentioning that there's 14, 14, and 14. What his point is, this is all structured this way. This seems to be purposeful. There's purpose running all through this. God is the one in charge of all this. God is the one who had promised a king to David in 2 Samuel 7 to always sit on the throne. There is now Jesus to always sit on the throne. God is bringing that promise about. God had promised blessings to the world through Abraham, and here God is delivering on those promises. Jesus does come with a family line, and he is fully and truly human. But this is a work of God. This is not just the natural working. It's not just that Jesus was this pretty holy guy for some reason that God decided that he was going to use and call to fame and fortune. But it was God's very presence interjected into humanity. God in Christ loves and cares for his people. He delivers them. He heals them. He washes them. He purifies them. He gives them wisdom, and he gives them justice. This is what the book of Matthew is about. He is faithful to his promises, always and evermore faithful to his promises. There come times when it looks like his promises would have failed, but in Christ, they are true. There's no doubt there's more to pull out of this genealogy than this, but I think this is enough for the time. These things, by the way, are also reaffirmed by the ending of the book. The very beginning and the very ending pay close attention to one another. In Matthew 28, 16 through 20, we read these words. The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The disciples, far removed from the disastrous consequences of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, go through their own little genealogy. They see the fall of Jesus. They see the darkness of the exile. He is taken from us. He is laid in a tomb. There is death. There is darkness. But now they have a new light dawned. They go to that mountain and they worship him. But again, it's just potential. Some of them doubt. Jesus is quite clearly the king that had been promised. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He is now undoubtedly the king of all kings, the ruler of all rulers. There isn't a lick of this world that doesn't fall under his authority and his sphere. He is the ruler of all things, graciously ordering his people and constraining all the plans of the world. And therefore, Jesus has every right to call all the nations. And he does, graciously calling them to be a part of his kingdom, 
calling people who are sinful, people who are wretched, people who are outcasts, people who are cut off, calling people who thought they belonged but needed to know that they didn't, calling them all in humility and gentleness and love and in kindness to come. To be a part of that which is new and to follow Jesus. And the story that Matthew unfolds, simply put, is how we get from point A to point B. How does Jesus go from a baby born in a manger, lowly, on the outside of everything, to the very center of the universe and the world as we know it? That story is the story of God loving his people, caring for them, giving them life. It is good news. Let us pray. Father, we gratefully confess that Jesus has indeed all authority in heaven and earth, that he is our God with us, and that he has commanded that we not only be disciples, trained to obey all truth, but to make other disciples. May our love for our Lord propel this. May his great love for us be the driving factor in our lives. And may his word give direction to our efforts. We ask this and all that we pray, both for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and for the good of his people. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would...